Welcome to Torah Apologetics. I am Sean, your host, and you're watching this on uh, Kingdom in Context. This is our Torah portions, and today we're going to be picking back up in Deuteronomy chapter 31. I just want to um, thank all of you for he for being here to join us, and uh, give you a big shout out, everyone that we see a lot of regulars in the in the live chat. So I want to welcome Mike K. Gunder. Welcome, brother. Be good is back. Vader Bear, Eric Rice, wildly unpopular. Um, Anthony Dickinson, Cassie McGee, Miss Marsha. Tom is here. Welcome, brother. Tagumpe Vela, GR Cleave, Simple Life Homilies. Welcome, everyone. Hannibal's here. Yaya Q. Colin is here. Uh, Tiffany Tiffany Collins is back. Beetlejuice, hello, hello. Welcome, everyone. And guys, we just want to... And my wife is here. Hello, sweetie. She's flirting with me in the chat. She's a blessing for sure. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed the Q&A last night. And I'm always happy when she gets to join me. It's a it's a treat. 
All right, guys. Well, that was um, August Rain. That is our our brothers, uh, Matthew Jansen's band, and um, they. That song was called "Walk Like Enoch." It's a great, great little tune. Hope you guys enjoyed it. And he his. If you guys haven't checked out August Rain, they're a blessing. So go check them out on YouTube. And I think you'll be blessed by all their music. It was it was great. Yep. So tour portion, guys. Jeremy thirty one one through thirty. We'll jump right in. And this particular one is that we're just doing one chapter today um, in this particular portion. So here in Deuteronomy chapter 31, it says that when Moses, Moses has finished speaking these words to all Israel, he said to them, I'm now 120 years old. I'm no longer able to come and go. And the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross the Jordan. The Lord your God himself will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you and you will dispossess them. Joshua will cross ahead of you, as the Lord has said, and the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the king of the Amorites, when he destroyed them along with their land. The Lord will deliver them over to you, and you must do to them exactly as I've commanded you. So he's um, reiterating the promise of taking them into the land. They've out, they've now in the plains of uh, Edom, and the plains of the, yeah, plains of Midianites, excuse me. And um, and or the plains of Moab near where the Midianites were because they took over all the Midianites back in uh, Numbers thirty-one. But they're here. They've been waiting. It's Aaron has died about four or five months ago. Um, Moses is about to die, and then after Moses dies, Yahweh is going to take them across uh, across the Jordan into this this land that he had originally given to Shem, but it's been overtaken by secession by by thievery basically. Um, the land's been stolen by the Canaanite clans and and a lot of other nations have kind of intermingled into the Canaanite empire as well. And so this is all the nations that he's reminding that they're going to have to drive out, including the uh, descendants of the Amorites that are still left over there. They took out the main portion of them earlier, um, a few years back, but now there's still people in the land they're going to have to take over. The father's just promising them, I'm going to be with you the whole step of the way. I just want to also point out in verse 3, it says, the Lord your God himself. Now this is a translational uh, insertion right here, guys. This is something that it's a wording, you know, translated to the English that the translators decided they wanted to put the himself there. And a lot of people get will use this verse or they'll get confused thinking that this verse is explaining that that Yahweh himself was was there with the Israelites standing in their midst and was going to walk over with them and take them over. And that's that, that is not what we see throughout the rest of the context of all these portions we've been reading all the way back to Exodus when Yahweh introduces himself to Moses through the angel standing in the bush. And so there was uh, this, this kind of language is what we would call agency. This is a language that is uh, implored by Kings, right? Well, they take the credit for their servants carrying out their will, carrying out their um, whatever has been tasked them to do. So there, as we've been talking about for multiple weeks previous, there's an angel of the presence. That's a specific classification of angel that has been sent to to walk in a company like a like an incredible babysitter, right? He's been there sent to walk with all the Israelites. He actually hovers in a cloud above them, and he's the one that is going to go with them. But also, he's the one that has been going with them. But also specifically in this context of Deuteronomy 31, one through four and five, most translations will just say the Lord your God and the Lord your God goes before you. And that's what I put the, the Septuagint up here, Deuteronomy 31, 3 in the Septuagint. The Lord your God who goes before you, he shall destroy these nations before you, and you shall inherit them. And it should be Joshua that goes before your face as the Lord has spoken. So the idea is that he's not he's not saying that these uh 
he's physically there and he's going to go with me. And it's not a pre-incarnate Yeshua, guys. Uh, Yeshua is not physically there. Like I said, it's this has all been explained to us in previous passages. It's an actual angel of the presence that's been commissioned to go and help the Israelites and to guard them, to walk with them, and to protect them. And so this that guy doesn't take the credit for himself. All the credit goes back to Yahweh because he's the guy who ordered it. He's the guy who commissioned it. Right. This is the authority comes down from Yahweh. So he gets the credit. He takes the responsibility for good or for bad. And so in this case, this is why the translators, I don't know if they had a, and there's several translations that do this as I have highlighted here. So I don't know if they have a Trinitarian lean or if they just decided to try to make it different. I, I, just, I don't know their motivations, but the point is it's not in all the translations and and the context, this is a little point of context to help you realize, okay, if there is a passage, it might seem tricky because it might, you think it might be saying something. Well, what is the fullness, like this idea about the Lord going before them? How, how is that described and explained in other books? And that'll help us get a well-rounded context to understand how to, how to read this and what's intended. Um, but otherwise you're just going to have contradictory language everywhere. So that's why it's not contradictory. This is a trend. The, the inclusion of the word himself is an inclusion by the translators. So let's keep moving here. In uh, verse 6 through 10, he goes on to say, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Excuse me. Do not be afraid or terrified of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Then Moses called for Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you will go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you. He will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. So Moses wrote down this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. Then Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the appointed time in the year of remission of debt during the Feast of Tabernacles. Guys, I apologize. I, With with my notes and, and what, what I'm trying to say, I, I sometimes forget to include little points that I that I think are important. So when I was talking about the uh, the idea of this statement that Yahweh is saying, I'm a, I will go before you, um, in the translation that the Lord goes before you, we're actually going to see not only is that is that um, a descriptor of what he has been doing and it's the authority that's leading them. But in a real sense, we're going to see a little bit later uh, in, in one of our pairings that the Levite priests take the Ark of the Covenant before all the rest of the children of Israel and they walk into the Jordan. Um, so to cross it before them and stand in the middle of it and let the waters pile up. So we'll read about that in a little bit. So there's a you know, there's a like a symbolic overarching application of the, how the father in authority goes before them and how he does that practically through his angel. And then there's going to be a literal moment where he says, you know, I'm literally going to cross over before you. And he does with the priest and the Ark of the Covenant. So we'll read that in a little bit um, here in six through ten. We have the father encouraging them, trying to like like I've always tried to say, just be strong and courageous. The father's he's never going to leave you or forsake you. OK, <laughs> this is very important. And he's trying to encourage the leader that's about to take over Joshua. As soon as Moses dies, Joshua's going to take over as, as a military commander. And it's almost like he's a governor, if you will, because the high priest is like the religious leader, if you will. They're supposed to work in tandem. And I believe at this point, it's Phineas is uh, the high priest because Aaron's already died. And so it's going to be Joshua and Phineas that are going to be like ruling over the nation. And, um, this is he's trying to encourage Joshua. Don't be afraid. You're going to go into this land and uh, he's going to be with you. He's going to help you dispossess the people that are there. And then he goes on to say, and like he explains in verse nine and 10, that they're um, the, the law that he gave to the priests and the sons of Levi, they carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. There's supposed to be the judges, administrators, along with the Levites and the high priests. 
to help maintain proper covenant behavior within the community. And then in verse 10, it says, Then Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years at the appointed time in the year of remission of debt during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's just something that in Leviticus 25, it talks about the Jubilee of like every 49 years. And so it doesn't talk about, um, at least from my, from my memory, I don't remember it talking about the seven-year concept. So it mentions the seven-year remission of debt. I know earlier in um, Leviticus, it talks or in Exodus, it talks about releasing your servants every seven years. And so that could be what it's referring to as well. And I, and I think that's, that's the inference here that we're also going to look at in our companion passage with Jeremiah. So verse 11, it says, When all Israel comes before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you are to read this law in the hearing of all Israel. Assembly, assemble the people, men, women, children, and foreigners within your gates, so that they may listen and learn to fear the Lord your God and to follow carefully all the words of this law. Then their children who do not know the law will listen and learn to fear the Lord your God as the, as long as you live in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting so that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. Then the Lord appeared at the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the cloud stood over the entrance to the tent. So just as we've seen all the way since back in Exodus, this cloud by day, this pillar of fire by night, this is the angel of the presence that's sent to go with them. And this is whenever it says the Lord came and spoke to Moses, the Lord appeared and the side of the camp and, and they were afraid or whatever. This is the idea that this angel is, is being made manifest. There's even some specific verses like Exodus 33, which says the Lord came down and stood with Moses. But the whole concept is that, like I keep saying, this is an agency concept. This is an idea where it's not literally... Yahweh, because Yahweh's already explained to Moses that Yahweh would, would his presence is so powerful. Moses would die. Flesh cannot see Yahweh and live. Okay. So therefore that's why they have the conduit with the angel, the intermediary that can relay these messages from the creator and has the authority of the creator uh, to, to speak these messages as well as um, exact any type of uh, correction that needs to be done when people are trying to get out of line or, you know, whatever that needs to be. He's basically, like I said, he's like a babysitter. He has the authority of the parent, the father to train the children while he's uh, commissioned over them for this time. This is what appears in this pillar of cloud and stood over the entrance of the tent. I, I just wish it's funny how each mention of it, they it's, they, it sounds like it's a new thing, but it's, it's not a new thing. This has been happening for 40 years. This thing's commissioned to go with them. So it's, it's interesting. Um, the way it's worded. So you go into verse 16. It says, The Lord said to Moses, You will soon rest with your fathers. These people will rise up and prostitute themselves with the foreign gods of the land they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I've made with them. And on that day, my anger will burn against them, and I will abandon them and hide my face from them so that they will be consumed. Many troubles and afflictions will befall them. And on that day, they will say, Have not these disasters come upon us because our God is no longer with us? And on that day, I will surely hide my face because of all the evil they've done by turning to other gods. Now, therefore, write down for yourselves this song and teach it to the Israelites. Have them recite it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land that I swore to give to their fathers, a land flowing with milk and honey, they will eat their fill and prosper. Then they will turn to other gods and worship them, and they will reject me and break my covenant. And when many troubles and afflictions have come upon them, this song will testify against them, because it will not be forgotten from the lips of their descendants. For I know their inclination, even before I bring them into the land that I swore to give them. 
So that very day, Moses wrote down this song and taught it to the Israelites. Then the Lord commissioned Joshua, the son of Nun, and said, Be strong and courageous, for you will bring the Israelites into the land that I swore to give them, and I will be with you. Now, this is interesting, guys, because if this doesn't show you just the absolute love of the Father for these people, he knows the future, he knows how they're going to act, he knows they're going to turn from him, break the covenant, worship other gods, do horrific things, reject him, and create all kinds of problems. And he's like, I'm still going to do this for them. I'm still, he's not going to relent. He's not going to turn back. He's not going to take them back to Egypt. He's like, I'm still going to do this for them. And I just think that that's, I mean, you know, without getting too um, preachy, I just think that that's what he does for our lives every single day. <laughs> this, is just, this is his wonderful, merciful behavior that he does for us all the time. You know, so as far as apologetics go, if you earn a conversation, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, and they talk about the quote unquote God of the Old Testament, and they try to make it seem like the God of the Old Testament is um, evil or bad in some way, take them to Deuteronomy 31 20, 22, Just show them like these three verses right here. Look, hey man, this is this is not something that the father wasn't surprised. This the father wasn't surprised when these people turned from him after he did all these amazing things for them after he brought them back into the land of their forefathers that was given to, to, to Shem and the land before them, it, it it's amazing to me that um, people would think, I guess it's, they just never, I guess it's about, it's like a, depends on the, the culture, I guess you're in the family you're raised in and, and whether or not people can recognize gratitude, you know, if they can recognize, um, why well, shouldn't that doesn't make sense? Not recognize gratitude, but if they have an attitude of gratitude, <laughs> they can recognize this type of behavior from the father. That hey man, he knows you're going to mess up and rebel and rebel against him and turn against him. He knows that they're going to deny him, do other behavior, break the covenant, worship false gods. He's still doing all this good stuff for them this whole time, you know. And that's and that just it's. I guess it hits me hard too because I think of like, you know, people in my life that you want to help, but you know, they're just going to not going to be grateful for it. And um, you just, you have to decide whether how much you want to help them or not, you know? Um, so it's just, uh, this is a lesson for me, is, is hopefully for anyone listening that this is uh, the behavior of the father. Um, that he's just, uh, he's merciful to those knowing that they're going to be disobedient, knowing that they're going to be unfaithful. He's still faithful to them. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful. <clears throat> yeah, long suffering. Simple life homilies. You're right. All right, guys. So verse 24 goes on to say, When Moses had finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God so that it may remain there as a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stick naft you are, if you're already rebelling against the Lord while I'm still alive, how much more will you rebel after my death? Assemble before me all the elders of your tribes and all your officers so that I may speak these words and hearing them and call heaven and earth to witness against them. Yeah, so <laughs> this is the end of the, well, it's not quite the end, I guess. Uh, verse 29 through 30 says, For I know that my death, after my death, you will become utterly corrupt and turn from the path I've commanded you. That's the narrow path, guys. It's the narrow path. And in the days to come, disaster will befall you because you will do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger by the works of your hands. Then Moses recited aloud to the whole assembly of Israel the words of this song from beginning to end. 
Okay, so next week we're gonna jump into verse chapter thirty-two that goes into the song, and I and I kind of wonder about the the phrase you know translating English for the song because it's not exactly like songs we are familiar with in our culture. I don't know how it went. If it was, if it did have a melody attached to it, that's what we consider a song. So it could have just been more of a, a literary term. <clears throat> Excuse me. But either way, we're going to read that next week, and I uh, hope you guys definitely come back next week for that. We have some companion passages we want to jump into, and I'm just going to kind of prepare them real quick so they can be seen easily. So we're going to read Joshua chapter 3, and this is going to be in uh, verses 1 through 17. All right, and then I'm going to go ahead and... Well, I'll tell you what, let me, I'm going to read these because we have a, a short companion passage today. Let me go ahead and read those, and then we'll take some calls and questions about the portion today. All right, guys, so this is uh, Joshua chapter 3. It says, Early the next morning, Joshua got up and left Shittim with all the Israelites. They went as far as the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, you are to set out from your positions and follow it, but keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between yourselves and the ark. Do not go near it so that you can see the way to go, since you have never traveled this way before. Then Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And he said to the priests, Take the ark of the covenant and go on ahead of the people. So they carried the ark of the covenant and went ahead of them. You guys remember, the ark of the covenant is the it's the mercy seat of Yahweh. It's his, it's his throne, basically. So they're carrying this throne. And this is the what Yahweh was referring to in chapter 31 of Deuteronomy, telling Moses, you know, you cross the Jordan, I'm going to go in front of you to cross the Jordan before you. Verse 7, the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you just as I was with Moses. Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. When you reach the edge of the waters, stand in the Jordan. So Joshua told the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. He continued, this is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will surely drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go ahead of you into the Jordan. Now choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And when the feet of the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, touch down in the waters of the Jordan, its flowing waters will be cut off and will stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant ahead of them. Now the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest season, but as soon as the priests carrying the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the flowing water stood still. It backed up as far upstream as Adam, a city in the area of Zarathon, while the water flowing toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. The people crossed over opposite Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel crossed over the dry ground until the entire nation had crossed the Jordan. So this is an incredible passage here, just like we see in Exodus 14, where the uh, uh, the waters of the Nile had been split so the people could cross over on dry ground in a not quite split, but um, very fascinating passage here where the, the water, the you know, it's like, you know, just putting something in the middle of a of a of a large river and stops it like damming up the river temporarily with an invisible dam, basically. And uh, I, I always wonder like how high the water spelled up during this moment because that if the water keeps falling, 
and it's going to take, you know, approximately 2 million people to cross over. It's going to take some time uh, for them to cross over. So that's a lot. That, that water would start piling up. I just wonder how that works, you know, if it piles up all in one spot or if it starts backing up in a big section. All I know is has, how does it not overflow its banks behind where it's piling up? Just this is one of those miracles that the Father does to control the nature because he has complete control over all of it. And just think of all the people watching. Just like, you know, in the rest of Joshua, they get to the Jericho and Rahab the spy, she kind of informs them that, you know, the people knew, knew who you are. They they know you're coming and they um, they heard what you did to Sihon and Og and they're trembling, you know. Um, and it makes me wonder because they from from where like even modern archaeology, you can go and see pictures where they found and uncovered and excavated a lot of the ancient settlement of Jericho. And it was a huge walled off city on this hilltop. And it looked down over uh, the plain that went down to Jericho toward the east. Excuse me. Uh, the Jordan river towards the East. So like they could see it like the watchman on the walls or anyone walking in out of the city, anyone looking in that direction would have surely noticed something, you know, like, Hey, the river, wait, wait, why is the river dry over there? But all the water's like extra thick over here. It just, I just visually, I just wonder how that would be represented. seems fascinating to me. So Taya bear says, I don't think it, would pile up in the air. It just stopped running. Well, the, the scripture says it piles up in a heap. See this? It's flowing waters be cut off and will stand up in a heap. So that usually means piling up. But yeah, that's, I mean, th I don't know what that looks like. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yes. Yekov Nathrim, this is, this is how, uh, just like, you know, these were super rebellious people that Joshua was dealing with, the same, same mindset, the same types of people that that Moses had to deal with. This is why Moses is getting warned by Yahweh that these people are going to rebel against you. You know, um, Joshua was also going to have to deal with this too. So therefore, Yahweh needs to magnify the authority he gives to Joshua in in the presence of the people, just like he did with Moses multiple times. So this, hopefully, this concept of validating the prophet or a leader of the people, the, how the Father would choose to do that through miracles is pretty fascinating because we see that also with Yeshua, how, you know, he was, um, he just constantly was being validated by the father that he was the Messiah to come. And there's even at one point where Yeshua was kind of frustrated with the Pharisees. He's like, well, at least believe in the miracles that you're seeing me do. If you don't want to believe me that I, who I say, I mean, you don't want to believe my word, at least believe all these miracles you're seeing being done because they couldn't refute the miracles. So it's just one of those ways that the father was supernaturally trying to show everyone watching, Hey, this is my guy. This is the person I chose for this moment. You need to obey him. Just like he validated the angel, the presence that was with him. And uh, he did it in good ways and bad ways. Depends on the rebelliousness of the people. Depends on when the people tried to test him. And so, yeah, that's, that's just uh, very fascinating. So that's, that is kind of like the immediate application. Cause we don't really get into Joshua a lot with the Torah portions. So I just wanted to pair that up with Deuteronomy 31 to show you, this is that moment right after what was promised to, to Moses that Yahweh would do for them. He fulfilled it and he did it. So let's look at uh, our other companion portion real quick. We're going to run into Jeremiah 34 and we want to look at um, some other things within Jeremiah because this is, this is actually has to do with verse 10 where it talks about, talked about in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, it talked about how um, they were to release the servants every seven years. At the, or actually they talked about the remission of debts that would take place um, around the Feast of Tabernacle, right? This, um, so it's very interesting to me because 
from what I remember, I think it was the 10th day of the month in Leviticus 25 that they talked about the year of Jubilee because um, it's that it was um, at the at near the Day of Atonement. But then four days later, obviously, you have the, the beginning of Sukkot. So this is where, um, or five days later. So it's it's in that same time period. Apparently, there's also remission of debts for servants as well. So this is what we're going to look at real quick. This is Jeremiah 34. We're going to read 1 through 17. It says, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all his army, all the earthly kingdoms under his control, and all the other nations were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding cities. And guys, what a, what a, a prophetic, I hate to say it like that. This isn't prophesying anything, this verse. It just seems, it's the similarity, right? The, um, we see this again at the return of Yeshua. Excuse me. So at the return of Yeshua, all the nations of the earth come together to try to fight, and they overtake Jerusalem, and um, they're in the land of Israel ready to fight Yeshua at his return as he descends from heaven. So it's it's fascinating that you have this similar setup here in the days of Babylon, the king of Nebuchadnezzar, during the days of Jeremiah. Um, but, you know, there's this was part of, of the story that was prophesied. So let's check out here. Verse 1 says, This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, all his army, all the earthly kingdoms under his control, and all the other nations were fighting against Jerusalem and all its surrounding cities. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, told Jeremiah to go and speak to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, and tell him this is what the Lord says. Behold, I am about to deliver this city into the hand of the king of Babylon. He will burn it down, and you yourselves will not escape his grasp. But surely, but will surely be captured and delivered into his hand. You will see the king of Babylon eye to eye and speak with him face to face, and you will go to Babylon. You will hear the word of the Lord, O Zedekiah, king of Judah. This is what the Lord says concerning you. You will not die by the sword, but you will die in peace. As pieces were burned for your father, excuse me, as spices were burned for your father, the former kings who preceded you, so people will burn spices for you and laments. Alas, O master, for I myself have spoken this word, declares the Lord. In Jerusalem, then, Jeremiah the prophet relayed all these words to Zedekiah, king of Judah. As the army of the king of Babylon was fighting against Jerusalem and the remaining cities of Judah against Lashish and Azekah, for these were the only fortified cities remaining in Judah. After king Zedekiah had made a covenant with all the people in Jerusalem to proclaim liberty, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord that each man should free his Hebrew slaves, both male and female, and no one should hold his fellow Jew in bondage. Now again, guys, it's a translational issue. This word is not, it's uh, even though they're going to abuse the law of the servants, originally this word wasn't a slavery concept like we think about in, in the history of the world today, where it's like just literally kidnapping people and bringing them into forced labor. This, they start to actually try to do that because they're abusing the law of servanthood that was supposed to only last six years. Okay. So this is what it's explaining is how they turn God's good law for people to work off debts. That's why this is called the remission of debts. Every seven years, these servants who have been working off their debts for you, if they haven't finished working off the remainder of the debt, you would still release the rest of that debt and let that servant go because you do not want forced slave labor. So this is why early slave labor in the sense that we are familiar with it today, where people are um, under the threat of death of you know being forced to work for someone for free. So this is a kind of a different situation, but the wickedness of the people in the nation at that time are actually going to take Yahweh's righteous law for this concept and start to abuse it and create actual forced slave labor. So in verse 10, it says, 
All the officials, all the people who entered this covenant agreed that they would free their men servants and maidservants and no longer hold them in bondage. They obeyed it and released them. But later they changed their minds and took back the men servants and maidservants they had freed, and they forced them to become slaves again. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I made a covenant with your forefathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, Every seventh year, each of you must free his Hebrew brother who has sold himself to you. Did you guys catch that? The dude, the guy, the brother, the servant, the worker sold himself to somebody. That's a very, 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 very different, guys. This is a part of apologetics, guys. You got it. You, you know, if you want to, you're going to find people out there that say that the Bible's immoral and unjust because it supports slave trades and slave labor. Of course, they don't read the whole book to see that Yahweh chastises the nations and punishes the nations that in, engage in actual true slave trade. But this is uh, this right here, as it just said, as we read back in Exodus and Deuteronomy and other places. The, the person, if they were in debt, could sell themselves to the person they owed the debt to willingly to pay off that debt and work it off. And if they haven't finished working it off by six years, well, then the rest of it's let go. So it's not their, their whole life's not ruined. They're not in some sort of weird debtor's prison. They work for the person. They're supposed to be treated well, according to Exodus 22, by the, by the person they're working with. And this and they're not, you know, um, yeah, I'm just saying there's this not forced slave labor under the threat of death. They willfully went into this contract to work for that person and work off that debt. So it goes on to say in verse 14, every seventh year, each of you must free his Hebrew brother who has sold himself to you. He may serve you six years, but then you must let him go free. But your fathers did not listen or incline their ear. Recently, you repented and did what pleased me. Each of you proclaimed freedom for his neighbor. You made a covenant before me in the house that bears my name. So guys, um, what did he just say right here? Verse 15, they repented and did what pleased him. To do the law of God, to do to treat your servants correctly according to God's law, his instructions, pleases him. So you remember in the New Testament, that famous passage, find out what pleases the Lord? It's right here in the Old Testament, guys. All these instructions for righteous living. That's what pleases the Lord. All right? It's doing the will of God. Do these commandments. Do these instructions for righteous behavior. That's what pleases him. Okay, guys? Verse 16, but now you've changed your minds and profaned my name. Each of you has taken back the men servants and maid servants whom you had set at liberty to go wherever they wanted, and when you again forced them to be your slaves. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You have not obeyed me. You have not proclaimed freedom, each man for his brother and for his neighbor. So now I proclaim freedom for you, declares the Lord, freedom to fall by the sword, by plague, and by famine. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. This is rough, guys. <laughs> this is rough. This is a super salty moment here where the father. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the memes I can make with this one. This is a this is salty, right, guys? Where the father's like, oh, you're gonna you're gonna do unrighteousness? You're gonna hold people slavery in slavery? You're not gonna let them go free? Well, how about I make you free to die by plague, to die by the sword, to die by famine? right? Um, basically meaning I'm going to release you from my protection of the covenant because you've now transgressed the covenant and ignored me duplicitously, right? So you remember also back in Jeremiah chapter three, verse um, eight through 11, it's, it's chastising the house of Judah saying that they, uh, under pretense, they returned and basically meaning their repentance wasn't genuine. Here's an example of that, you know, 30 something chapters later um, of where the the southern house during the days of Jeremiah was the only one remaining. And so the people, the, the multiple tribes that inhabited that southern house, 
that they they were uh, transgressing the covenant and acting wickedly like the nations around them and engaging in slave trade against their own people. So this is uh, the father's like, oh, okay, cool. How about I make you free to die? <laughs> so it's just, it's kind of like, uh, just, it's uh, some dark humor, I guess. Super salty moment. So guys, this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 34. So this is just the father, you know, trying to encourage them. He wants these people to keep his covenant behavior because it's good for the people if they do that. As you see, when the people stop doing covenant behavior, it's bad for everybody. It makes them weak to their nations. It's oppressive to their own people, which obviously would create, you know, <clears throat> bad, um, bad relations between the people and, and, and the servants that they were serving them, uh, which also creates a caste system within a culture. And that's uh, economically, that's, that's always rough for people, which creates various levels of deprivation and oppression. So it's, uh, it's just, you know, they were practicing the ways of Babylon, basically, instead of the covenant ways of Yahweh. So it's, it's really rough. So let's look real quick at, let me, let me pull this up. I had it pulled up, but I guess my computer rebooted last night. All my, all my saved things are no longer saved. One second, guys. We'll look at our, our next companion passage in the book of Enoch. This is going to be in chapter 89. Chapter 89. Enoch's a big book, but we're looking at chapter 89. And we're going to be reading verses 26 through 41. Because earlier, Yahweh tells you know Moses multiple times. Like in Deuteronomy 31, we read... He tells them, like, they're going to rebel from you. As soon as you die, they're going to rebel in the future as well. And then also he's told that in Jubilees chapter 1 at the at 40 years earlier than the Deuteronomy 31 moment. In Jubilees chapter 1 at on Mount Sinai, uh, only three months into their journey, as they're renewing the covenant, Moses is told by Yahweh on top of the mountain through the angels, hey, I know what's going to happen to them. They're going to transgress and rebel the covenant. And, um, but still, I want you to go through with it, you know, and, We've we went over Jubilees chapter one and, and multiple videos, but um, that same concept is constantly being being warned to Moses. So that means the whole four years that Moses is there dealing with these people, he had to be patient. Use the patience of Abraham, right? He had to be super patient with these people, knowing the promise, knowing that the good that would come later in spite of, you know, the, the current affliction and trouble that he had to deal with, with the rebellious and obstinate people um, who just had so much Babylonian Egypt in them. You know, they just, they just had so much occult programming in them at this point that they were already. And you guys, we've talked about this in other, other tour portions when we're reviewing Exodus, that it wasn't, it, it was a purposeful trick by the enemy to impose over like 70, 80 years on the children of Israel while they're still in the land of Goshen to forget Yahweh and to the point where they refused to let them actually practice their religion. They refused to actually let them worship Yahweh. It was illegal for them to actually do a sacrifice to Yahweh in the land of Goshen, the, the territorial kingdom of Egypt. So by the time, you know, Yahweh gets them, gets them out through Aaron, uh, Abel, excuse me, through Moses, um, they come out and they still have so much occult programming in them because they had been oppressed. 
And this is what the enemy does. It wants to limit your ability to, to move, your freedom to move. It wants to limit your ability to flourish by limiting usually your food and your work resources. And it wants to limit your ability to worship. And that way it can systematically brainwash you into um, trying to forget uh, to put your faith in the creator and his rules for your life as prominence in your life. And many of you might be thinking, did he just describe 2020? Yes, yes, I did. Systematically, through this great reset agenda, they've been trying to systematically force people's limit of movement, limit of resources. They're trying to create mass shortages that are purposely perpetrated on the on the cult, on the nation economically. They're holding up um, at the ports or holding up imports and trades for goods and services. Um, they're intentionally trying to stop workers. Uh, excuse me, stop businesses from employing people that haven't been jabbed with, with gene altering therapy poisons. They're, they're trying to create strife at every level of the economy to break the economy down. Oh, and by the way, remember what they did last year where they told everybody, you can't even go to your churches, right? So the, the government, when it starts to incrementally starts to try to come in, it, it does it on these big major levels, right? Of restricting your movement, restricting your ability to, to, to make profit and to work, restricting how much food you can have in preparation, and then also restricting your ability to worship your, your faith. This is the systematic program that we see the enemy does on all cultures, and it's a form of communism. It's the modern vernacular for it, but it's just the ancient ways of Babylon. I've tried to talk about that in videos I've done on my Kingdom Cast series where I go over the tenets of communism and how certain elites within the UN that, that were pushing that on the world they had a systematic plan that they talked about back in the 1960s that they wanted to do to America to remove Christianity from America. And it's just communistic plans, very similar to what we see Egypt had done to these people. So now they actually step out into this moment where the father breaks them out of that. And he gives them this opportunity for, for 40 years with the babysitter and Moses and Aaron in, an, in a set apart, isolated area away from the nations by themselves gives them like 40 years to practice this stuff, to get back their courage to do what's right as a, because they were living under oppression, which steals your courage. So he wanted to get them back their courage so they could be strong, right? And this is why I think the father's so impressed with guys like Caleb and Joshua because he says, you know, they, they're just different, man. They're built different. They got a different spirit about them. And uh, they had their courage the whole time. They were ready to go and take out the anybody that opposed Yahweh. They knew that the father would protect them. And especially, you know, if he told them that this is what they wanted to do, they were supposed to do. So this is where the father's hoping the rest of these people will adopt that attitude as well. And so therefore he wants them to read Deuteronomy every year to make sure they understand, you know, or at least every, I think it's every seven years um, to make sure they understand like, yeah, Hey man, you, you know, you've, uh, you've got to have, you've got to remember everything the Lord's done for you. You've got to remember because he has done this for you. So you should be strong and courageous to follow him throughout your whole life, right? So here, with that in mind, we also see in the book of Jubilees that while they were in Goshen, the Levites had the books of their forefathers. We see this in Jubilees chapter 44. So this, these were carried through with Jacob. He had all the books of his forefathers and took them with him down to the land of Goshen. Uh, so I personally believe that one of those books was the book's in the writings of Enoch, because as we're going to see right here in our companion passage, the writings of Enoch says the exact same thing that we're told in Jubilees one. And that Moses was told in Deuteronomy 33, that these people will 
will rebel against you. Now, it doesn't say it in the direct language because it's a prophecy of Enoch. And he uses these uh, this metaphoric uh, prose where he, he calls people different types of people, different types of animals. So for example, like in this, uh, in this part of the, of the narrative, the Egyptians that are oppressing the Lord's sheep, he calls them wolves. I think it's pretty interesting, right? Because Anubis was an African, the, the, the symbol of Anubis was an African wolf. A lot of people think it's a jackal, but that's a common misconception. It was that according to historians um, and Egyptologists, it was actually an African wolf. And the wolf was also kind of like a, an occultic symbol of uh, many, many different cultures that were involved in Babylon. So it's very interesting that he calls the people that was oppressing them, the wolves. So in verse 26, he says, and when they saw the Lord of the sheep, they turned to flee before his face, but that sea gathered itself together and it became as it, as it had been created. And the water swelled and rose till it covered those wolves. This is the Exodus 14 moment, the, the Nile coming back on the Egyptians pursuing the, the Hebrews. Verse 27 says, And I saw till all the wolves who pursued those sheep perished and were drowned. But the sheep escaped from the water and went forth into a wilderness where there was no water and no grass. They began to open their eyes and to see. And I love this, guys. This is a, a common uh, idiom that's used in the book of Enoch to express that the people began to do Torah. They began to do right behavior. Um, they began to learn it. This is the idea of, of being to have sight, to, to open your eyes and see versus being blinded. And I saw the Lord of the sheep pasturing them and giving them water and grass and that sheep going and leading them. Awesome, right? And that sheep ascended to the summit of that lofty rock. Okay, so here, I mean, if you're not recognizing, this is the Moses moment, right? Going up to Mount Sinai. And the Lord of the sheep sent it to them. And after that, I saw the Lord of the sheep who stood before them. And his appearance was great and terrible and majestic. And all those sheep saw him and were afraid before his face. Guys, this is not the father or the son. They're not visible. They're not to be seen by the people for one. And they're not there at this moment. This is this angel that is sent to go before them. Just like the entire book of Jubilees explains it's written in the narrative of the angel talking to Moses on Mount Sinai. This is what is affirmed in Galatians 3.19, that the law was mediated by angels on Mount Sinai. It's also in Hebrews 2.1. It's repeated by Stephen in Acts chapter 7, verse 53. It's not Yeshua, and it's not the Father. It's an angel. It's an agent. His ministering messenger is angel. Verse 31, it says, They all feared and trembled because of him. They cried to that sheep with which was among them. We're not able to stand before our Lord or to behold him. This is exactly what we see in Exodus 19. Verse 32, and that sheep which led them again ascended to the summit of that rock, but the sheep began to be blinded and to wonder from the way which he had showed them, but the sheep would not thereof. So obviously after Moses ascended, the people rebelled, built the calf at the bottom of the mountain. Enoch prophesied all this long time ago before the flood. Verse 33, the Lord of the sheep was wrathful exceedingly against them, and the sheep discovered it and went down from the summit of the rock and came to the sheep and found the greatest part of them blinded and fallen away. Exodus 32. And when they saw it, they feared and trembled as his presence and desired to return to their folds. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, right? People tried to leave, right? They, they dispersed from their partying, from their occultic practices, and they dispersed. But then Moses had to come and do some, some you know, take care of the people who had, uh, there had to be a reckoning, right? So verse 35, and that sheep took other sheep with it and came to those sheep which had fallen away and began to slay them. And the sheep feared its presence, and thus that sheep brought those sheep back that had fallen away, and they returned to their folds. So this is what we we get expressed, right, in the, the 3,000 Levites that chose to go and exact actual vengeance on the people that perpetrated the rebellion 
having the rest of the greater amount of people saved that because they were no longer under the influence of the rebellious. In verse 36, I saw in this house till that sheep became a man. This is a, a wonderful turn of a phrase in the book of Enoch, guys. People that truly become faithful in walking with Yahweh, you're called a man. For all, that, for all the guys in the audience watching, you want to be a man? Enoch tells you how to be a man. Dedicate your heart to Yahweh. Walk in his ways. There is no alpha male beyond Yahweh. If you're doing his behavior, you're doing alpha behavior. You are a man at that point. And this is what um, Enoch is even expressing here too. I saw in this vision till that sheep become a man and built a house for the Lord of the sheep and placed all the sheep in that house. And I saw to the sheep which had met that sheep which led them to fall asleep. And I saw to all the great sheep perished, and a little one rose in their place. And they became to pasture and approached a stream of water. And then that sheep, their leader, which had become a man. Oh, here it is again. Joshua. Um, withdrew from them and fell asleep. And all the sheep sought it and cried over it with a great crying. And I saw till they left off crying for that sheep and crossed that stream of water. And there wrote, or sorry, I guess I was speaking to Moses. I apologize. I, th I thought it was... I just got confused with the wording. Yeah, it is Moses they were still referring to. Because then they crossed that stream of water, what we just read in Joshua chapter 3. And there arose two sheep as leaders in the place of those which had led them and fallen asleep. And I saw till the sheep came to a goodly place in a pleasant and glorious land. And I saw till those sheep were satisfied and that house stood among them in the pleasant land. And sometimes their eyes were opened and sometimes they were blinded. Till another sheep arose and led them and brought them all back and their eyes were opened. So this is uh, leading into Joshua, going into the book of Judges, where there's a back and forth between the people. And then actually it goes into what we see in the book of Judges with the dogs, that's the Canaanites and the foxes and all the oppressing and uh, the wild boars, the Amorites, like the, all the different people that are mentioning that come to try to devour the sheep and oppress them until the Lord raises up a ram in their midst to protect them. So that's what we get into the book of Judges. But ultimately, guys, that is... Um, that is the book of Enoch and, and first Enoch guys is a powerful book. Um, if you guys are watching this for the first time and you've been, you've been lied to <laughs> whether unintentionally or intentionally, people have told you the book of Enoch is not valid and shouldn't be considered. I would strongly encourage you to go check out um, on this channel. I have an actual Enoch playlist. So you can go on a playlist and look, and it's a lot of the videos we did from honor of Kings that we break down Enoch, both the manuscript history and we look at this theology and guys, it is a super blessing of a book. And I mean, it's literally written for the times we're living in. It just gives you an incredible amount of wisdom. It Tons of prophecy about Yeshua. Same visions that Daniel has in Daniel chapter 7, Enoch has in Enoch uh, 46, I believe. And it's, or 48. It's just, um, and also chapter 60. It's amazing. It's amazing, guys. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. Go check it out. It'll bless you for reading it and understanding it. But guys, I'm going to go ahead and put the call-in link at the bottom of the screen. If you do want to call in, you're welcome to do that. Also put it in the comments in the live chat. You guys are welcome to call in with a question. Or if you have any questions about what we talked about today, you're welcome to put them in all capitalization and put them in the live chat. So make sure you turn on your caps lock so I can see your question. There's, a, there's sometimes a lot of uh, chat, there's so it moves quickly, and I can't see them unless you put them in all caps. So, um, but yeah, you guys are welcome to do that if you'd like. Hopefully today was understandable and a blessing to you. Curiax uh, 9, no information on Lilith outside of occult books, which I don't read, study, or take any theology from. Uh, so I don't, I, I don't 
to me, understand my understanding of Lilith is that she's a made up construct from uh, Gnostic ideals and the occult. So I don't really find any validation for that. Rose Shiflet is asking, Sean, do you know what year the Israelites actually took possession of the promised land? I apologize, sister. I do not. I do not know that. We can, we can all guess, but I, I truly don't know. Days of Noah, destruction of DNA happening now. Yeah, it's it's uh, definitely it's 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 a part of the eugenics, guys. Is uh, they want to they definitely want to definitely want to change people's genetics if they can. That's a part of the corruption of the people in the land. Uh, Simple Life Homies is asking: Are the Arabs descendants of Herods? Herods? Um, well. Of the Herods, maybe? I think you're asking about the the family rulership that was kind of like a prov provincial governor under the Romans during the days of Yeshua and 100 years before, the Herods. Um, the, the Arabs were already in existence. I mean, they were like offshoots of the Ishmaelites. So they're already in existence way before the Herods came around. Uh, so I guess, hopefully that's a decent answer for you if that's what you're asking about. Yeah, you see the you see the actual mention of the Arabs back in like Isaiah, different places. Um, they're in the book of uh, Jubilees. It also talks about them being a part of the traveling merchants with uh, the Ishmaelites. So, because they're in the same region. The fact that uh, we see in the book of Job, his wife was an Arabian, I believe his or he lived near Arabia on the border of Arabia and Edom. So. That's in uh, the Septuagint version of Job, and I am chapter 42, verse 17. So they've been around for a while. Okay. Uh, Laco Serlan is asking, do you think the tribes in Canaan were all giants? No, no, uh, definitely. I think the enemy is, is smart. So one of the mistakes made in First Enoch that it talks about in chapter 6 is that the giants consumed all the acquisitions of men. So you get a problem because of uh, logistics. You, you know, if everyone's a giant, you can't grow enough food. Uh, the land can't support it. You'd have to start then genetically altering your food to try to make enough food big enough. But then there's, there's problems with it. It doesn't grow as easily as other food. This is why in Numbers chapter 13, they did bring back, you know, the cluster with them to show how big the food was. They were trying to genetically alter their food. But um, this is this is uh, something the enemy is always trying to do to figure out a way to, to greatly multiply food um, because it is is the basic necessity for a giant who like, I mean, guys, like even someone like tall NBA basketball players that may maybe 250 pounds or 300 pounds, like their their metabolism rate and what they need to eat every day is ridiculous. Same thing with Olympic athletes. And that's just people with normal sized bodies under seven feet for the most part. But you get someone that's like 20 foot tall or 15 foot tall or even 13 feet tall like Og, the amount of food you got to eat every day is just is really, really big. So what happened after the flood, the Nephilim after the flood, from my research and what I understand, is that not everybody was being manipulated to be a giant, but just the leaders of the, you know, the ruling class. And this is why they were also ascribed to be considered gods, because they were um, 
that everyone else could then support them versus a whole bunch of giants and not have enough revisions like we see talked about before the flood with those giants. So hopefully that's a decent answer for you, brother. Um, Prodigal Son, I don't I don't know if this is a question or not, but yeah, I agree with you. Uh, Caleb was grafted in. Uh, Hannibal, yes, that was my inference today, was that the Jeremiah 34 companion passage was referring back to the Deuteronomy 31.10 idea of them having a remissions of debt that they would um, announce and proclaim and, and make sure happened at Sukkot every uh, every seventh year. So this would be, that would be my inference. That's what Jeremiah was referring to. That's why I was saying it doesn't really detail it very well back in Leviticus 25, but, Jer but Jeremiah is talking about it, and I think that's the, the connection with Deuteronomy 31. Okay, we've got Vader Bear calling in. Hey, Vader Bear, what's up, brother? Hey, what's up, man? Uh, appreciate you taking my call as always. Uh, great stream uh, for tour tonight, so your portion. So appreciate that. Um, so Thanks. yeah, um, oh yeah, my pleasure. How's your How's your week been? It's good, brother. It's good, brother. What's up? That's good. How's your so, week been? Oh, it's been pretty good. We got back, so we do Sukkot, um, like per the Jewish calendar, and we got back from that like on Tuesday. Uh, okay. So it's been it was really good. We went to Bear Lake, and um, I uh, Anthony Dickinson, who you know, he sent me his um, P nine hundred infrared with the infrared mod, and I took some long distance observations um, over Bear Lake, which is pretty cool so but cool. anyways uh to the to the torah portion of question so um you were speaking about uh where you know like uh, before and then today like where we're seeing this we're seeing this like you know figure that it's labeled as god but it's not god and then for a lot of my life i did this mental gymnastics where i'd be like well Jesus went outside of time. So as soon as he did, you know, like I did all this like crazy things into my head to make yeah. that make sense with the Trinity. Um, but the way that you're explaining it makes even more sense because I think about it the same way as creation. Like when it says Elohim created all these things, it's like, yeah, he can go and tell his angels to go something and build a castle. And then who gets the credit for the castle? The king does not, not right. the individual workers right. who made it. Um, so I thought that that was kind of really like the creation model where the angels in the book of Enoch are charged to make sure the sun goes through the correct portals within its tracks in the firmament. Same mm -hmm. thing for the moon and the stars. But yet um, Yahweh is praised in the Psalms as being, you know, keeping the sun and moon faithfully rising and setting every day. Totally. You see what I mean? So there's mm -hmm. the father ultimately gets all the credit for these things, but he definitely has, you know, his servants that help him do things. And that's, that's kind of like them. That's kind of like the, you know, and Joe was like, does, you know, does the thunder report back to you and tell you where yeah. it struck? Like he has like angels, his workers yeah. coming and saying, okay, all these I'm reporting to you where the thunder was struck. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's really beautiful. And uh, so I guess my question with all that is, is, and I, I guess I kind of asked this question a lot, but. When it comes to like this type of stuff, I find it really difficult to get through people um, that are almost like I, I almost say like they're stagnant within a pond of of 
washed up Catholicism. And it, like, for instance, my sister, she went to seminary and, you know, she's a, a pastor and, um, and to me, like trying to talk to her, it's just like, it, it's like I'm talking to a wall. So I, I even like, I take a lot of things you say and other people say, and in my own scripture and all, my own findings. And I take that to her and I say, well, what about this? And she just says, I interpret it different. Do you, and of you course. were kind of mentioning before, like, you, you know, you have your family, you help them up to a point. And like, for me, it's really hard because my whole life, my sister was like the closest. And a lot of the reason why I didn't make as many mistakes as I maybe would have made was because my sister like, you know, was a churchy and I called her a super Christian because, uh, like she, always, she went Sunday multiple times, Wednesday, multiple times, you know, did all yeah. these different activities. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what, it, but, but when it comes to me trying to share my findings for her, it's like, it's nothing. So what would you suggest in talking to someone about that? If, if you haven't, with all the information yeah. I gave you. This is this is something you see me do in some of the times I interview pastors or have debates or whatever, where I actually ask the person, um, I know that's your interpretation, but here's the definition of the word. And here's how we see that definition used. So it does require you to be prepared on the topic, right? Totally. So I'll tell people, here's the definition of the word that you're interpreting something different than what I believe the word's meaning says. Because that's usually 99% of the time, brother. That's usually what's going on. Seminary has taught them the seminary, for some weird reason, gives its students this strange license for subjective interpretation to say, oh, you can if you want to interpret it differently, it's OK. And that to me is a cancer um, on, on the thinking process. It's like I talked about last night about dispensationalism, mm -hmm. right? It, because that's them willfully choosing against the, the descriptions of the clearly spoken words, them choosing to reinterpret it according to their own desire. So this is where that even happens to the best of us, right? Even our family members. And so just try to maybe, I don't know how logical she is. I don't know her personality, right? Some yeah, people are totally. super logical. Some people are more emotional. And so if she's been swayed emotionally into what she believes, it's going to be a different approach. That's a little, that's going to get a lot more prayer, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. now it's going off of the people who taught her that she respected them so greatly. She has an emotional attachment to what they taught her. And it's like a tied to her ego, right? Because well, that, yeah, in, I don't want yeah, I don't know I, her, so I didn't want to go that far, but I'm just, I'm giving yeah. plausible, plausible avenues of approach. So mm -hmm. I'm sorry, some, something's like flown in my eye. I apologize. Oh, no um, worries. What I mean by ego is not necessarily like being, I'm just saying like, right. Like for instance, my mentor, he works and he, he does a lot of stuff with quote unquote satellites. And so for him in order, like, it's not necessarily an emotional thing, but for him, he has to be like, oh, all those things that I thought I was doing wasn't real. Right. And that's a lot harder to do. But yeah, I get with the emotional side too. And I think it is with at least my sister more emotional. So that's, you know, that's an interesting thought. It's just hard. It's hard to know, like, how long do I sow a field and I don't see anything growing? You know what I mean? Do I just keep sowing it until, until yes. I die? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Cause okay. you're not, you're not the one that waters it all the time. That's true. You can be, but somebody else can come along and water it. And that seems to be the case. A lot of times with family, Yeshua talked about a prophet has no honor in his hometown, mm -hmm. right? His hometown tried to throw him off a cliff. My bro. Mm -hmm. Think about that for a minute. His, his hometown where he grew up, tried to throw him off a cliff. Right. Yeah. So that's unfortunately, you know, and he, he didn't work many miracles among them because, they had no unbelief in who he was, even though he had done all this amazing stuff and everybody else 
was all over him, wanting to follow him and, and trying to bring their sick to him and everything. So it just, unfortunately, it just happens sometimes like that where the people we're closest to, for whatever reason, they've seen your mistakes in the past. And then therefore they. <laughs> Hi, wife. Hey. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. She didn't Sorry. know that. Um, so sometimes because they've seen you grow up and they've seen your life in the past and they've seen you at your worst, they sometimes can't respect you when you're trying to improve yourself or your knowledge base. Right. So that's, that's why sometimes family is the hardest crowd, but someone outside of your family can come along and water that seed you've been planting. Um, in fact, I believe uh, a mutual acquaintance of ours, uh, Jaron, he actually talks about the same idea with his mm -hmm. sister about she's now being red pilled on certain things and other people, other circumstances in her life have now become that water to those seeds he planted where previously she thought he was crazy, totally. you know? So just little things like that. It takes time with some and others. You just keep planting the word of truth in them, you know, but like, but remember I, my, without knowing her personality, my first tactic mm -hmm. and strategy in that approach is give them the definitions of words. That is the most important. They have to understand, like if you're subjectively interpreting this and you're just saying, and you're just falling back on this, this mask of saying, Oh, that's my interpretation. Yours is different. We'll say, no, no, no. What did the father tell us? Like, what did the words mean things? They have definitions. We have to go by those. Um, and so let's look at the actual definitions of these concepts. You know, what does this word mean? What does that one mean? And, and if she refuses to answer that, well, then there's just the ego, the pride, the denial, right? Totally. If she can't have a normal conversation with you to say, look, if, if you didn't know me, if I wasn't your bro, if I wasn't your brother and I was just someone that was trying to learn from you in your congregation, would you ignore a, com a conversation with them about the definitions of the words in the text? Of course not, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I would yeah. hope not. So, no, I, you know, I get what you're saying. Yeah, no, yeah. totally. And and the, all the points that you're hitting totally make sense. Like, she knows my mistakes, so she can see me and be like, oh, he thinks this because of this reason. But yeah, that I, I really appreciate that. Well, um, uh, I, I don't know if you know, do you mind me giving a little shout out real quick uh, for uh, a show we're doing tonight with me and Anthony? Do you mind? Oh, yeah. Are you guys doing your show tonight? It is yeah, on, so, on the World Channel? No, it's on Take on the World and Enclosed Cosmology. We're going to have cool. Austin Wits It Gets It on it. We're going to go cool. over the footage that I took from Bear Lake and then just have some general conversation with him okay. uh, about his tour. So, Now, how far was Bear Lake? How, how many miles across is that? Uh, it's from, from it's 19, it's they say it's 20 okay. miles, but I kind of, I went on Google map uh, earth and, and like did the calculations from where I took and where, and all that jazz. Like I have all that information, um, ready to share, but, uh, so yeah, it should have been like a hundred and seventy seven point something miles below. And I'm literally watching vehicles 20 miles, you 19 mean, miles away. You mean feet, 177 feet? Sorry, yeah, feet. Sorry, yeah. yeah. Okay. Feet below the uh, the curve. And I'm literally watching cars like on yeah. the opposite side of the lake going going by. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to look at it. I got some cool footage of the moon, too. So we'll look at that and um, kind of talk about that. Because the moon is moon is a very interesting thing. Like, like all we know is it's a light uh, that rules or uh, governs the the night. And other than that, it's, it's such a mystery. So, uh, yeah. but. Yep. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time. That's at a, a nine to 11 uh, PM Eastern. Um, so if anyone wants to join that and close cosmology or take on the world TV, uh, we definitely would appreciate it. And I appreciate your time and let me shout out and all your answers, dude. I definitely, uh, I know, I know so many people in our discord that have been like, Oh my God, Sean, like, 
he changed like he fixed it he changed you know like i've seen so many people come with your content and, and see the fire in their heart so i appreciate that um oh cool you know, thanks for saying for me so yeah that's encouraging thanks brother all right have a good one all right thanks Vader. talk to you later thanks. All right, guys. Uh, Gilbert, you're welcome to call back in. I, I was trying to get to you. Sorry, buddy, if you didn't have enough time to stick around. Um, but if you if you don't have time to be on camera and you just want to put your question in the live chat, we can get to it there as well. Natasha is asking, do you believe Yeshua is an anointed man or an angel or what? Well, I believe is the son of God that was sent to become a man, right, to be born of the flesh of woman. This is what Paul refers to. Actually, I'm going to pull this up on screen real quick because this is something that um, just recently I've seen some some really rough manipulation of this text to try to make it fit Trinitarian viewpoints, but it's, it's not, I mean, we're told very blatantly that the son of God is sent to the earth, but for some reason people don't, don't like to abide by that general basic idea. They, because they push different, you know, Trinitarian doctrines. Um, but ultimately this is fish Timothy three sixteen. by common confession. The mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in the flesh. Now the reason why in this particular translation, it has see this little C in blue right after the word appeared. So it goes down to the footnote, and it says, literally, he who appeared, but these other translations, the Byzantine and this other one, the Texas Receptus, says that God appeared. And so then people will say, they'll go here and go, oh, well, see, look, this says God appeared in the flesh. See? Trinitarianism. God. But we know it's the Son, so it's also, and they'll then they try to conflate it and say, oh, it was the Father that appeared, but it's it just the Son. And then you're like, oh, well, this sounds like modalism. They're like, no, it's not modalism. It's Trinitarianism. It's the, oh, so the God and the Father are two separate people. So then who showed up in the flesh? God. And you're like, wait a minute, who showed up in the flesh? Was it the Son or was it the Father? Well, it was the Son, but it was God. And you're like, oh, yeah, okay, I get that. Uh, but but you know what the word Elohim has a definition to it, right? Just like I was telling Vader Bear. Elohim did appear in the flesh because Yeshua was existent with the Father before he he was born of a woman. He And that that nature his his physical makeup was is considered elohim status that's what that that word has an application for so it's yeshua that appears in the flesh obviously um but uh and was seen by angels proclaimed among the nations believed throughout the world was taken up in glory so an angel is someone that is a servant to the father and to yeshua so yeshua before he became in the flesh through the womb of mary when he was with the father in heaven above before he came to the earth he was also over the angels in authority and under my understanding, because he was like, he tells Pilate in John 18, 38 and 39, his kingdom is not of this world. And he says in another place in Matthew 12, at any point, the father could send 12 legions of angels at his disposal because he was the king of heaven before he came to the earth, before he put down his, his glory, his authority and his power. But still the father was always over him, even in heaven. Right? So this is this idea that why he's always pointing back to the father through, you know, in his words, in his ministry to tell us to worship the father. And, you know, but the son was sent, not the father. So he was, he was of an Elohim nature, which is like a, a unique, like a godlike status in his created being. He wasn't made of flesh like humans are, right? He was made of the spirit and water, like, like the, the, the inhabitants of heaven are made in that type of creation. Um, so he was existed of that, right? He and the father had this spiritual nature. And yes, they actually do have a body. Daniel sees it in Daniel chapter 7, verses uh, 10 through 14 in his vision. Enoch also sees it in Enoch 48 and Enoch 60. So they had a spiritual body before they before Yeshua comes to the flesh. This is why you know, um, we're made in the image of God. Uh, Genesis 126, let us, plural, make man in our image, father and son, 
look like mankind. We're made in their image. Okay. So that's saying he was, uh, once he was became a man, then he was anointed and appointed to be the Messiah. Um, and then once he died and was resurrected, then he's got a new nature. He's got this new creation. He's a glorified man, given an eternal, immortal, incorruptible body, and which is now uh, even greater than the angels. So he's now has like a super Elohim status, if you will. And that's what's promised to mankind as well as a greater nature at the resurrection than even the angels. So it's a, it's amazing. Um, well, of course he was still greater than the angels before he came, but now he's, he's greater than the angels as a glorified man now. So um, he's definitely not an angel. All right. So our brother Gilbert's calling back in. Hey brother, welcome. Oh, I can't hear you. See if your mic is turned on. Can't hear you, brother. Mic check. Not sure. Not sure what's up. I'm sorry, brother. Maybe uh, check your connection, or I don't. I'm not sure what's uh, what would be stopping. You may have to go into your settings and make sure that other apps can use your microphone. Sometimes that's an internal setting. But I'm gonna. Yeah, we still can't hear you. I can see your 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 mouth moving, but I can't hear you. We'll keep working with it, brother. I'm sorry. Um, I'm gonna take some more questions. Um, check your settings and see if uh, if you need to give permission to apps to use your or or for websites to use your mic. Sometimes some phones have that set up like that. Um, let me see here, guys. Let me see. I saw another question. Uh, Mars Leader 88 is asking, will we worship Yeshua? Two definitions of worship. Priest at a temple uh, bringing forward food to make a meal to the Father, that's considered religious worship. That is that is worship, right? But that's done between a priest and, and the Almighty God. Yeshua is our high priest. He does that on our behalf in the heavenly temple to the Almighty God, his Father, on our behalf. That's one form of worship. Another form of worship is the idea of bowing in respect to a king. We will do that to Yeshua, but we will not bring sacrifices to Yeshua because... I mean, well, we will not we will not have a priest make sacrifices to Yeshua because Yeshua is our priest, and he is going to make sacrifices on our behalf to the Father. That's the job of a high priest. So this is where you know that's that's kind of the point of him being a high priest. So that's where we will worship him in the aspect that we will revere him, we will respect him, we will be under his authority, and we are under his authority, and we review we revere him as you know uh, the Son of God. Um, so it's it's okay if you want to call him God. He's definitely an Elohim status, and uh, we definitely respect him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as the one the Father sent to be ruler over us. So in that capacity, he's he's like God to us, right? But we don't actually do the actual instructed Torah form of worship to Yeshua. We do that to the Father, actually through Yeshua's priesthood, right? So it's about understanding how these jobs work, how these words are defined as far as what a priest is, what they do. And so, yeah, we will we will respect and bow down and give praise to Yeshua as an amazing person that rules over us um, under the authority of the Father. But we will not bring sacrifices like burnt offerings or thank offerings or peace offerings to do them to Yeshua. We do them with Yeshua as our conduit that does them to the Father for us. That's the role that was given to him.
Okay, Yahweh's friend is asking, why did David's son die if Scripture says no son will bear the sins of their father? All right, so guys, um, physical consequences in life, this is not the same. And Ezekiel 18, the, talking about the soul whose sins will die, um, there's a lot of physical consequences that happen when sin happens. Now, the reason why his firstborn son died in the in the case of Bathsheba getting pregnant um, right off the bat when he threw adultery, um, I, I don't know the medical reason going on there. Right, David fasted and prayed, but the moment that 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 happened, he knew that the son that he would see that child again at the resurrection. the The son itself, and this is in that prayer, in that moment, in that passage. That's why I just mentioned that. You might think that why why would you mention that? He David mentioned he's going to see his son at the resurrection. What does that have to do with my question? It has everything to do with it because David knew the story. He knew that the son is not bearing the sin of David. Physical consequences happen all the time for parents' mistakes towards their children, and sometimes it results in death. I don't know the circumstances specifically with the genetics or the biology of why exactly that son died, but the, the son did die. But remember, the son is not bearing the sin of David as far as being an infant, taking on the punishment required for the second death that David needs atonement for. So this is the idea that Ezekiel's that the the reference in Ezekiel that you're talking about. And, and trying to apply to this particular story. Um, I understand why you would try to apply that, but that technically is not what Ezekiel is talking about. He's talking about giving an account for your life. That's why that whole passage in Ezekiel is talking about the soul who does wickedness, but then repents and does righteousness. Okay, well, then he's, he'll be considered righteousness, right? The soul who does righteousness, but then does wickedness and transgresses and continues in wickedness, well, then he's considered wickedness. But if the person is wicked, then can, repents, then we consider righteous again. You know what I mean? So like, there's all this back and forth scenarios in that chapter that mentions the soul whose sins will die and the sins of the father. The sons shall not bear the sins of the father, right? And it's talking about in the, in the, the overall sense of a person's life being judged, right? So like... The reason I say that is because the son that was that died, that was stillborn when it was born, or I think it was stillborn, um, or the son that struggled and eventually died, um, that was born of, of Bathsheba through that adulterous affair from David, that did not is not that son is not standing at judgment before Yeshua having to answer for David's transgressions. That's what Ezekiel's getting at. It's a big difference. That even David in his prayer. After he gets up from morning, after they tell him your son's passed, David gets up and he's like, all right, well, I'll, I'll see him at the resurrection. So he knows that son is not going to have to answer for David's transgression. That son will, will be in the resurrection. Just like I believe all aborted babies or stillborn miscarried babies will be in the resurrection. Right? So this is where eternally, the eternal consequences of that person's life, the son does not bear, does not have to answer for or have the, the righteous behavior for to cover over the sins of a rebellious father. That's what that word bear means, by the way. It's a priestly term. Um, so that's why in the physical, though, a father who does something stupid, sometimes results happen to their children. So this is, that's what it was. Yeah, that... No, no, no. The son's going to be in the resurrection. He's, that's again. We have to understand the idea of of what Ezekiel's mentioning as far as judgment for a person's life. So yeah, this the son was going to be in the resurrection. He's okay. The baby's going to be fine. Um, David had answer for his own sins. That's what Ezekiel's getting at. Hey, you're welcome, brother. Um, let's see if I saw any other questions up here we want to address today. 
Crispy Chips is asking, Sean, some believe since God created things in two, both male and female, then there is a mother in heaven. What do you think about this theory? Uh, pure theory, no mother in heaven ever mentioned any scripture. Um, the only, I mean, you just have wisdom as personified as a female character, but so are lots of other things in heaven personified. And, and, and you know, it's, but there is no, there, that's, um, that's actually Greek philosophy, this idea, it, Greek, Roman, Babylonian and Hindu philosophy that there is a, a female as a um, as a part of one of the gods, mother gods, you know, that created other people with with the male gods. So this is not in any of the Hebrew literature that I've ever read is uh, is the idea that there is an actual female in heaven. All the angels were created male in heaven. So unfortunately, there's no there will not be any females in the kingdom of heaven um, until they're in the New Jerusalem with resurrected women. So there's there's no description of any they, they don't need to procreate. This is what Yeshua kind of expounds upon in Matthew 22, 29, 30 with the Pharisees, the Sadducees asking about whose whose wife will this woman be at the resurrection? Because she had a whole bunch of husbands while she was alive. And she was like, You don't marry or given a marriage in heaven. All right. So the father is uh his standard is for all things in heaven. It's his ways, it's his law in heaven. There's no marriage in heaven. These are immortal created beings, and they were created by the father on day one. And uh, all the angels were, and there is no mother needed, in you know, with the creation concept. That's women were given to mankind so that man would would not be without, would, so man would be complete, and that was only for mankind. So this is explained also in the book of First Enoch, chapters uh, nine through fifteen. Okay, we also have Gilbert calling back in. Hey, brother, can you hear? Can we hear you now? Oh, brother, I can't hear you. I cannot hear you. I, I see your, your mouth going, but I can't hear. Yeah, I'm trying to. All right. So you're not muted, for, at least from my perspective. You're not muted in the studio. Try to say something. See if we can hear you. Oh, I can't hear you. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Sorry, brother. I'm not sure what's going on. That's unfortunate. Uh, yeah, yeah, Q, I have a, a debates playlist where I go through and um, you can see me in live time, in real time, in live interaction with people, uh, breaking down the, the problems with the Trinity and seeing their rebuttals, you know, and many of them just do not, do not, they're not happy at the end of that conversation. So if, but if you don't want the debate aspect of, of actual conversation going through the problems with the Trinity doctrines and the different facets of them, I also have a, a video from Morning Cup of Context. It's on Isaiah 9, 6. And so, um, it's called uh, a. Yeah, let me. What is it called? Let me go find it real quick. I can put it in the chat. Yeah, is Jesus also the Father? Is what it's called. So I'm going to link that for you in the chat. Right now, it's called "Is Jesus Also the Father." And that's that's one where I kind of go through it. Um, yeah, his friend, I believe the ones that are stillborn or aborted before the first resurrection will take part in the first resurrection. 
those who uh, are aborted or stillborn in the millennial reign will take part in the second resurrection. So that's why there's two resurrections for two epochs of time, if you will. Okay, guys, I'll just take one more question and then we'll uh, call it a day. Hopefully this has been a good tour portion for you. Hopefully you've, uh, you've learned something or you've, you know, sparked you to research something or, uh, Jason Kinney. Hey brother, he's asking, do you think the beast could come back as a giant hundred percent? I think you will be very tall, eight to nine feet. Yeah. And, and not just a giant as in like, you know, I think he's also going to be some sort of weird hybrid alien style as well. Big, big style. I mean, this is all the propaganda that they've been pushing at us for the return of Apollyon. Um, is that it's not, he's not just going to be, it's going to be more like a transhumanistic um, Android style, like mixture between man and, and robot type thing of, I mean, this is, this isn't all the programming. So I don't think it's just going to be a giant. I think he's, he's going to be taller than the average person for sure by several feet, but also is going to be modified greatly. So, all right, guys, I appreciate you guys joining me today. Thank you everybody for calling in. Thank you for uh, your, your, questions they're really good um and hopefully today the tour portion was something you could take with you and share with people so if you like this video thumbs it up share it on your socials be sure to subscribe we also got kingdom cast tomorrow night i'm doing investigating babylon um episode uh, what we're we gonna do we're gonna do episode hang on one second here let me look let me do something real quick so we're gonna do episode uh 17 episode 17 and it's we're gonna be talking about the image of the beast so I definitely hope that you guys can be there for that. Let me see if I can do something real quick. For, for those of you who may not have seen it. Just have to remember what it was called, what I named it in my files. Huh. It's not there. If you guys are enjoying that that series as well tomorrow night. Um, after I got to get with Ken to see to make sure we're doing Honor Kings tomorrow night as well, or tomorrow afternoon. But then tomorrow evening, I'll, I should be able to have the time to do a Investigating Babylon series episode. And we'll go over the image of the beast, guys. It's some crazy stuff in there. I'm not sure a lot of people have seen before, and um, it's <laughs> hopefully you'll have a, a much better understanding of, of the concepts and why you see things play out in revelation as you do. Um, after we review the image of the beast tomorrow. So let me just, uh, put this up real quick. Just a little teaser for that. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth and he had two horns like a lamb and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him, and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. 
Okay, so yeah, make sure you join us tomorrow night for that. And uh, that will be hopefully edifying for everybody. <laughs> hopefully. You're going to see some stuff that is like, oh man, there's so much history, guys. There's so much. And there's so much in propaganda and indoctrination preparing us to to have uh, the return of historical things. So it's just, it's amazing. It's truly amazing. Truly nothing new under the sun. But hope you guys enjoy your Sabbath. If you're, if you're celebrating today, if you're taking the day off and resting, and uh, I just want to leave you with a beautiful song real quick. And hopefully it's a joy to you. All right. See you later.